Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. Studying other people's lives is enriching. Um, perhaps it helps you to lead a slightly better life yourself because you, you know, the experience of um, entering to somebody else's um, personality and world, um, I don't know, widens your horizons. You know, it's a bit of a cliche, I know, but, but gives you a sense of what it's like to be somebody else. And that must be an enriching thing, I think. What is the secret to great travel writing? And did Patrick Lee Fermer set the standard? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with award-winning writer, biographer and cultural critic Adam Sisman, whose latest book, More Dashing, Further Letters of Patrick Lee Fermer, has just been published by Bloomsbury, where Adam writes... Patrick Lee Fermer's letter suggests that he's always writing in a rush. Yet if some of the letters were written at speed, most were written with care. They are full of wit and sparkle. Adam goes on to state that Paddy's domestic arrangements were unusually chaotic, even by the standards of a freelance writer. For one thing, he found it hard to resist the lure of society and was capable of travelling across the continent for a party. So who was Patrick Lee Fermer? What was his allure, and how has travel writing changed over time? My name is Adam Sisman. Um, I'm a writer specialising in biography. Uh, I've written biographies of uh, historians, um, Hugh Trevor Roper and A.J.P. Taylor, and of John le Carré, the spy writer. Um, I've also written about biography. I've written um, a book called Boswell's Presumptuous Task, which is about writing the life of Johnson, um, the, the first modern biography. Um, I've also edited letters. Um, I've edited the letters of Hugh Trevor Roper and most recently I've edited two volumes of letters of Patrick, known as Paddy, known to everybody as Paddy, Paddy Lee Fermer. Um, uh, the first one called Dashing for the Post, which was an expression he used all the time. And the second one, rather unimaginatively, called More Dashing. Really well done on uh, the collection of letters. I have to say it was a very stimulating read, very warm, uh, very funny, and um, how you sketch up his life through the letters is very creative uh, and very accessible for all sorts of readers. I might throw you a big wide open question, Adam, to kick things off. What makes a great uh, travel writer? What do you think? Ah, I think that's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, I think there are really two different kinds of travel writer. I mean, there are the travel writers who go out into the wild and describe their adventures. Um, uh, I mean, two examples. Um, Benedict Allen is one of those, um, the chap who recently got um, uh, brought back from, uh, where was it, Borneo, I think. Um, or or Dervla Murphy, she's a good, good example. Um, but then there are the more literary travel writers who... Um, their travel writing is more closer to fiction. Um, And uh, they explore the culture of the place uh, which they are visiting and sometimes they explore the mythology or the the anthropology, ethnography. Um, And uh, Paddy is certainly one of those. Um, You've got the narrative always of him in whatever place it is or traveling through that place, but you've also got his reflections and, um, and often great long diversions into um, things that interest him. And he's interested in almost everything. And what about truth? Is that a requirement, do you think? <laughs> You've gone straight for the, uh, the jugular. Well, no, I don't think it necessarily is. I mean, uh, take, for example, Bruce Chatwin. Bruce Chatwin, uh, who, you know, generally acknowledged as one of the greatest modern travel writers, uh, incidentally, a friend of Paddy's, I mean, he definitely wrote about some things that didn't happen. As for Paddy, well, Paddy, Paddy worried about this question a lot. Um, first of all, he had to conceal the truth in some ways because some of the people he was writing about were still alive and would have been embarrassed if he had uh, revealed their names or their identities. But secondly, um, there were great political sensitivities in the, the parts of the world that he was traveling through, particularly between the Romanians and Hungarians um, who are still at, uh, at, at each other's throats about 
um, Transylvania, for example, um, and even even the way that you uh, give a place name, it's a bit like um, uh, certain um, parts of the north of Ireland. You know, uh, the way you say whether you say Londonderry or Derry um, denotes who you are and denotes your sympathies. For anyone who hasn't read any of Paddy Lee Fermard's books and our letters, can you just give me a brief background to him and his writing? Certainly. Well, he was born in 1915. His parents were um, in India most of the time, um, and he was um, lived with a, um, a farming family but was sent off to boarding school. Um, as a child, he rather roamed wild. He developed a kind of... Um, uh, an independence of spirit which stayed with him uh, and he went off he, w- he was sent to a variety of schools um, uh, and ended up at King's School Canterbury where he was expelled for holding hands with the greengrocer's daughter um, they were caught in flagrante as it were um, and uh, although that didn't seem, doesn't seem by modern standards to have been such a heinous crime nevertheless in whenever it was in the uh, the early 1930s, it was enough to get you expelled. So he, he found himself at the age of 17 um, uh, at, at a loose end. And he, he formed a project, a plan, that he was going to walk across Europe um, to what he called Constantinople um, and take his time doing it and um, see what happened. And that's what he did. And, and his experiences um, are then um, related in a series of uh, a trilogy of travel books, which he never completed in his lifetime. The first one being um, called uh, Time of Gifts and the second one Between the Woods and the Water and the final one published posthumously, The Broken Road. And the, these, uh, these give an account of a very young man's experiences um, setting off with a rucksack on his back, um, not much money, um, and, but with a few introductions. And he, he, he really sees a kind of amazing society which is about to be swept away forever, but in some ways that has remained the same since at least the 18th century and, and maybe in some ways since the Middle Ages. And sometimes he's got introductions to barons or counts and is staying in schlosses, but sometimes he's um, sitting around campfires with gypsies or um, hitching a ride with bargemen on, on canals. Um, he, 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 um, he often sleeps under the stars. Um, at one stage, all his possessions are stolen, and he has to uh, um, um, get some money by um, offering to do portraits of people. He goes around knocking on people's doors. But it's ba- basically, it's a book, I feel, it's a book that reminds you of what it's like to be young, and it's very refreshing in that way. He seems to have been a really lucky fellow all through his life. And I'm not talking about relationships with the ladies. You know, in the scenarios that he found himself in, in the generosity of spirits that he had and those who who, who met him, he seemed to have been very, very lucky. So I'm just wondering, what part do you think in terms of luck did that play in his overall success as a writer? Well, uh, he was very lucky, for one thing, in being extraordinarily handsome. Um, When he was um, played in a film based on his wartime exploits, by Dirk Bogard. Um, uh, there's some good photographs of the two of them together, both smoking, and uh, um, they're, you know, two very handsome men. Um, uh, uh, and he was, so he was very attractive. In fact, he was attractive to men as well as women, though he, he was um, um, exclusively heterosexual in his interests. And uh, he, um, he was also a great talker and a great enthusiast, and um, that opened lots of doors for him. He wasn't, he wasn't from the upper classes. He's, he's, he came from a, well, perhaps an upper middle class family, you might say. But he didn't have much money. He never had much money throughout his life. Um, and he relied to a large extent on the woman who became his wife, who, who did have private money. Um, but um, he uh, could talk his way into the great houses of Europe, and particularly in England. Uh, he became friendly with people like... Um, uh, the Duchess of Devonshire, Debo, who became one of his closest friends and therefore often stayed at Chatsworth or their house in Ireland, Lismore, Lismore Castle. Um, uh, and uh, he, uh, he sang for his supper, you might say. Um, he, he was a talker who would entertain people and uh, some people found him irritating, but some people, many people found him delightful. I'm just wondering, though, could you pull something like what he did off nowadays as compared to then? Obviously, what we get glimpses of is, you know, from the very early letters, you know, um, crumbling Europe, but a crumbling traditions within Europe and that of the high classes. But I'm just wondering, could you do what he did now? Because, well, forget about technology, but actually just to with a few quid in your pocket just to take off. 
Well, I think you can in some parts. I mean, there's, there's a young, youngish man called William Blacker who went to Romania, inspired by Paddy, and in fact, he went to see, talk, he became a friend of Paddy's, and he went and lived with gypsies in Romania, and in fact, uh, had a child with a young gypsy woman. Um, there is a parallel between, and that, that all happened in the, um, I think, the late 1980s or 1990s. Um, some, I mean, a lot has changed, of course, and, and, uh, uh, communications being so much easier, in a way, has made things less exotic and less exciting. Um, um, he didn't have a mobile phone, of course. He didn't, uh, and in fact, telephones, he rarely used telephones. Um, uh, so he was much more um, cut off um, and reliant upon himself uh, in order to um, sustain himself over that. Uh, it, took him, it took him just over a year to get to Constantinople. Um, and pretty much all done on foot, um, a little bit on, on water, but that's that's it. And what's so interesting is, and you highlight it um, in more dashing, is that, you know, he didn't have a fixed address until he was um, nearly 50, till he'd properly settled down. Like, he w- he'd, he'd written somewhere between 5,000, 10,000 letters. And within that, um, for most of it, he didn't have a fixed address. It's, it's a, remarkable, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, he was... A, he, like, um, uh, I mean, we, we, we'll talk at some stage, I expect, about his war record. Um, he, he had an outstanding war, and like quite a lot of people who had had an outstanding war, he found it difficult to settle down afterwards. Um, he did spend six months working for the British Council in Athens um, and then was fired, and that's his only period of paid employment. <laughs> um, after that, he was always a, a freelance writer um, uh, and never did anything else. And, and uh, as a indicated never had much money um and he 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 lived all over the place um he never had a fixed address until he was in middle age um he kept became very good at borrowing at cadging other people's houses um and because he knew quite a lot of wealthy people they were often quite nice houses (laughs) um but um at one stage for example he um rented for a very small sum a huge castle um, uh, within sight of Rome, about uh, 20 miles from Rome, um, which sounds marvellous, but the castle had no electricity and no plumbing, no running water, um, and was infested with both rats and quite nasty, creepy crawlies, crawlies like scorpions. So uh, um, it wasn't quite as luxurious as you might think. Uh, he lived there for a whole summer, and he, he basically moved around Europe. The first sustained period of going away was spent in monasteries um, in France, in the late 1940s, when um, he, uh, he he stayed in a series of monasteries, including uh, La Grande Trappe, which is a Trappist monastery, by, as its name indicates. I'm just wondering, when you were planning to put together this collection of letters and you were dealing with such an enormous uh, character uh, like, um, like Paddy, does that in some way maybe challenge you in terms of how you live your, I suppose, um, everyday life? Because, you know, you're talking there about renting out castles. You know, he was chancing his arm. Sometimes he took great risks. I know his uh, wartime record, and you mentioned there, you know, when he was on Crete, you know, he took extraordinary risks to a Agree, but I'm just wondering, did that kind of challenge your own ideas about how you're living your life when you saw uh, the ambition this guy clearly had in terms of living it as best he could? Yes, I think, it, well, I, I find this is generally true with biography. Uh, every time I write a biography, I'm influenced by the life of the person I'm writing about, sometimes in a hyper, hypochondriacal way. I mean, when I was writing about Hugh Trevor Roper, who had terrible trouble with his sinuses. I developed terrible trouble with my sinuses, which, uh, when I finished the book, fortunately cleared up. <laughs> um, I think there is, a, there, there is an, a strange way in which biographers and, and writers in general, editors of letters, um, uh, identify with their subjects. And, I mean, uh, with Paddy, um, I, uh, I, I suppose it's uh, made me feel uh, I'm at a different stage of life. I'm in, now in my 60s. Um, but when Paddy was in his 60s, he was still youthful. Um, I like to draw the comparison with Byron, another Englishman who loved Greece. Um, Byron said that one of his greatest achievements was swimming the Hellespont, which he did when he was 24. And Paddy also swam the Hellespont, but he did it when he was 69. 
so uh, there's hope for me yet. <laughs> That's so interesting when you say you kind of go into this kind of, I suppose, uh, psycho loop of sorts um, with um, whoever you're writing about. But, you know, um, this guy was such an interesting man. But what happens if you take on a total nut job then? Well, you, uh, maybe you just don't uh, write a biography of a nut job. Is yeah, that it, could, <laughs> it could be quite worrying. Yeah, yeah, I could be. I mean, um, uh, I, I don't think that um, I am um, uh, really like Paddy in any way and certainly not nearly as charming or as good looking, unfortunately. Um, but um, I think that, uh, incidentally, one of the things, I mean, it's only occurred to me as we've been talking that, I mean, Paddy did have Irish roots and although he was, said by one of his close friends to be the most English person she'd ever met. He was quite proud of his uh, Irish origins, and, and maybe there was an element of the blarney about him. You know, the, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, he could, he did, he was a fantastic talker. There's a, there's a wonderful letter, actually, um, in, in Dashing for the Post, where he describes visiting Derry at the height of the Troubles and having a long conversation in a pub with a, uh, a spokesman for the provisional IRA. And they get on tremendously well. Um, and in fact, when Paddy finally drags himself away, the, uh, the IRA man says, keep your voice down for Christ's sake, <laughs> because Paddy has a sort of very English accent. Um, and Paddy goes straight off to Chatsworth. And, and as I say in my introduction, two more different worlds could not be imagined. But Paddy was quite comfortable. He could span both these worlds. He was he was happy in a pub or a taverna, um, but he was also uh, at ease in a in a castle or a grand stately home. That shows a tremendous depth of character. And I know you do write in your introductions that, you know, the letters show how um, he psychologically and often emotionally engaged with his correspondence. But like some of these letters are, you know, riveting stories. Uh, some are more like travel logs. Some are deeply personal. Some are other very kind of consoling and encouraging. But he seems to have put so much into each letter, didn't he? He did, and it's interesting to think why he did that. I mean, one of the reasons is that he was often in these isolated spots in that castle I mentioned, um, uh, um, 20 miles from Rome, or in, 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 indeed in, in, in the isolated part of the Marni, where he finally settled at the age of 50. And these are places where it, uh, there's no telephone usually, and um, really the only way in which you can communicate with the people that you're close to is by letter. Um, so, so partly he, it was just a form of communication, but partly I, I think that it's a bit more than that. He, he wants to, first of all, he wants to entertain people and give them pleasure, um, both the person that he's particularly writing to and the other people who might read the letters, and some of them perhaps were read aloud. And, and now that they're in print, of course, we can all read them. But uh, um, the, I think there's a, a further thing that you just hinted at, which is that Despite all this, this effervescent personality, and, and, and which um, uh, um, you constantly see in the letters, he did suffer from periods of depression. And I think for him to imagine somebody who he was fond of, um, in the and, and to write to them, and, and, and the effort of imagining that what, how they would receive his letters was a way of comforting himself, a way of drawing, bringing himself out of this depression. You can actually see that process in at least one of the letters that he writes, for example, to his partner Joan, where he, he begins it in a deep depression. In the actual letter himself, itself, you can see that he, he's sort of risen out of that depression. He's sort of recovered. Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with British writer, biographer and cultural critic Adam Sisman, whose latest book, More Dashing, Further Letters of Patrick Lee Fermer, has just been published by Bloomsbury, where Adam writes... Paddy maintained several close and long-term friendships with women conducted largely by letter. Though platonic, there was an element of courtly love in them. It is significant that his lady pen pals were all well-born. Adam also remarks that Patrick Lee Fermer's long-term partner Joan tolerated Paddy's lovers and even his casual encounters with prostitutes, confident that he would never leave her. I asked Adam about their unique and spacious relationship. They were apart a lot, um, and it was an unusual, it was an open, open relationship. Um, they, um, they had been together since the, um, the end of the war, but uh, they didn't get married until 1968, and uh, both before and after that, Paddy had 
affairs with other women, but they weren't secret affairs and they weren't uh, covert. Um, Joan knew about them and indeed some um, met and welcomed some of the women. Um, she knew that she was the most important person in Paddy's life and that when the love affair had burnt, uh, had run its course, he'd come back to her. Um, she was a much more private person. She didn't really like socializing in the way that Paddy did. So, for example, towards the later part of his life, Paddy formed a tradition of going to Chatsworth every Christmas to stay in a kind of house party with his great friend, the Duchess of Devonshire, and her husband. But um, Joan never went with them because she didn't really like those kind of big house parties. She didn't like the company. She was a, sh- a shyer, a more private person. It's remarkable that she didn't at any stage get unbelievably jealous. And you're, you're saying there was an open relationship and he, he was upfront about the different women he was having sex with. But that takes unbelievable courage, grit and um, inner strength. It, it, it is a, um, uh, I think she must have been a remarkable woman. She was also a very beautiful woman, that's worth it, and, and had her own admirers, though I think once she fell in love with Paddy, that um, they, um, um, she, she, she had herself never had another affair, as far as I know. But um, uh, certainly there were many men who were in love with her, and you can see why when you look at the photographs of her. She, they, they were a very beautiful couple, um, uh, the pair of them. And, and many people admired and uh, respected her, um, partly for her um, quietness, um, which made such a contrast with Paddy, partly also because she was a, a skilled photographer. And uh, a book of her photographs has recently been, been published, and some of them are really terrific. I mean, they really are uh, exceptionally good. She also funded the show pretty much, didn't she? She did, and that's perhaps one of the more troubling aspects of their relationship, um, in that, um, you know, Paddy is... Um, always um, uh, short of money and often reliant on uh, funding from Joan. In fact, she she gave him a kind of allowance. But also, I mean, on, as uh, in Artemis Cooper describes in her biography of Paddy, on, the, on a certain occasions she gave him money to go and find a woman, um, um, uh, um, and that uh, um, that does, that does does seem a bit unusual by our standards. Well, maybe she was pragmatic in terms of she knew, she, you know, she knew what kept him going, and she wanted to keep him going. And yeah. irrespective of how you look at whether what that how that reflected on the relationship or not, she was keeping the wheels in motion. But it seems that he always worried about money, and you've you know a lot of the letters show you know his different correspondence with his publisher John Murray, and whether he's looking for payments or looking for a lodgement of some sort or an advance or something that you know he was always anxious about money. He was always anxious about money and with good reason. I mean, uh, they, they never had very much. And it's quite hard to kind of get, wrap one's mind around that, in, you know, in the sense that some of the time he's going and staying at, uh, you know, in these magnificent houses and mixing with dukes and duchesses and going to balls and things. And, but at other times, um, um, they haven't really got enough money to you know, buy a fridge or, or whatever. Um, uh, the, um, uh, for example, when they were uh, when they found a bit of land that they decided to buy and build a house, um, where they eventually settled on uh, in the Marni in, in the Peloponnese. I mean, they lived for several summers in tents on the site, and certainly for the first summer, they didn't eat meat the whole summer. It was all um, fruit and vegetables. That's all they ate. Um, they couldn't afford meat and they couldn't afford fish. All all the money was going on the house. Um, uh, so so in some way, it's it's a sort of a Strange combination of of a life, a high life, but also quite a Spartan life in some ways. I was just wondering about his war record. You know, um, he was in um, he was on Crete, as far as I know, and he was involved in um, an abduction of a well-known uh, German. Um, uh, was he a general or what was he? He was the general yeah. in command of the German forces on the island. And uh, um, uh, Paddy had initially, um, it, was, it was very patriotic. At the outbreak of war, he joined the Irish Guards and not his. Irish ancestry, um, but he'd been seconded into the intelligence corps because he, he, they found that he spoke so many languages. Um, and um, um, he was then sort of um, posted to Greece, um, and then when the Greece was overrun by the, the, the Germans to, um, to Crete, he worked undercover in Crete for several years, um, parachuting in or being landed by submarine and liaising with the partisans. He, he grew very close to um, um, uh, the, the, the Cretan partisans, or certain Cretan partisans, who remained his comrades for the rest of his life. And anyway, they, they, uh, the highlight of his, his, his time 
uh, during the war was planning and carrying out this abduction of a of the German general General Kreiper he was called, um, which um, um, during the kind of um, um, after the period after the kidnap he Paddy and his band of uh, Cretan partisans were in hiding in the mountains with the general and there were thousands of German troops searching for them and planes and 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 uh, um, it was um it was a very big thing and eventually they managed to spirit him off the island and to uh, to uh, uh, Cairo. Um, um, it was um, a, a very sort of spectacular um, uh, um, uh, operation. You may say perhaps it has a dubious military value, but it was uh, certainly a morale raiser, and the Cretans were desperate to do something for the war effort, and, and so perhaps it was important in that way. It was then turned, it, I mean, it was the subject of a best selling book called Ill Met by Moonlight, and that then became the film that I alluded to earlier, um, where. where um, Dirk Bogart played Paddy. Can we talk about The Traveller's Tree, A Journey Through the Caribbean Islands? I think it was published in 1950. That was his first breakthrough book, wasn't it? It was, it was. And in fact, originally, um, he was um, just going to write captions for a book of photographs. But um, as often with Paddy, um, what started as a small commission ended up being much larger than originally envisaged. Um, uh, So it, it was originally just simply going to be a a photographic journey through the Caribbean with photographs taken by a friend of his, a Greek friend of his, um, but it turned into a full-scale book. Um, Paddy, I suppose, just found his feet. Having said that, he was a publisher's nightmare. I mean, he always wrote far more than he was supposed to. Um, for example, I mean, another example is that he was commissioned in the 1960s to write a piece about the Kriper operation, uh, a piece of 4,000 words. Well, he eventually it grew so long that that turned into a book in itself. Um, poor Jock Murray was a very, very long-suffering publisher. Do you think he was a bit of a perfectionist, was he? He was a perfectionist and he was a worrier. Uh, he couldn't let things go. He was endlessly revising and revising and revising. It was partly because um, he, being the sort of person he was, he was very anxious to get things right, but also very anxious not to give offence to anybody. quite hard to write a book without giving offence to anybody. Um, and uh, so he rewrote and rewrote. Uh, I, I argue uh, in my introduction to um, both these volumes of letters that... Uh, um, some of his published writing is a little bit overwritten. Um, he's, 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 he's corrected and corrected it so much that perhaps he's lost the freshness of the original. One of the joys of the letters is that they are more spontaneous. You feel his personality, the warmth of his personality rising from the page and you feel sort of closer to the real Paddy, I think. But it is understandable if, you know, whether he was writing, um, you know, uh, from his diaries and then coming back and writing these um, travel books and so on, um, you know, when he was trying to deliver the best possible picture or the most detailed or whatever, you can understand why he, you know, craft, 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 worked so hard at all of that. And then it lost its vibrancy. Do you know what I mean? I suppose like any, if you overthink anything, it um, falls apart. Yes. I mean, I don't think, I don't want to overstate this. I mean, the, 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 the published writing and, you know, it's still tremendously worth reading. Um, I'm just making a case for the letters as being part of the overall, as being not a distraction from his main work, but something worth reading in itself. I mean, I think he just was, um, I mean, he missed deadline after deadline, um, and, of course, he never finished the, the trilogy, as I said earlier, the trilogy about his great walk across Europe. It was very sad, actually. I mean, he lived a very long life. He, he didn't die till he was 96. And even uh, well into his 90s, when he was, by that time, um, suffering from tunnel vision, which made it very hard for him to read, he was deaf, which meant that he couldn't really hear what anyone said. Um, and he was suffering from various ailments, including the cancer of the throat that would eventually kill him. Um, he was a widower by this time. Joan had gone. So it was, a, it was a, a rather beleaguered life. He was still tormented by worry about finishing this final volume. And uh, all his letters say, I'm really getting down to it. I'm, I feel I will finish it. And, um, but it, it just became too much for him. And it's rather sad to think that this person who lived such a rich life in so many ways was always so worried about um, deadlines and, and right up until the, the moment that he died. Um, you feel that perhaps he, he could, someone should have taken him aside and said, don't worry, Paddy, we'll finish after your death. Yeah, his death is rather extraordinary because he pretty much um, got himself back over to England and died within 
a day or two, wasn't it? Yes, yes. A rather touching thing is uh, that the woman who served as his housekeeper for, for him and for Joan um, in, in the last uh, 20 years of his life, uh, Elpida, who still lives in the village there, um, she was totally devoted to him and she, uh, she came with him and, 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 and stayed with him right to the end. Yeah, he wanted to come back to England. It, it's very interesting, his relationship with Greece, because he chose not to live in England, and, and uh, he was in love with Greece, and he, in fact, um, left his property and his house to um, uh, the Greek, uh, the Banaki Museum in Athens. Um, but he says in, in a letter somewhere, we're just guests here, and um, I think perhaps... Uh, and he was patriotic in an old-fashioned way. One of the most distressing um, moments for him was during the Cyprus emergency when um, he, he very much disapproved of the heavy-handed um, British policy in Cyprus, um, but he felt obliged to defend his own country um, um, when criticized by Greeks. And this led to um, a certain estrangement with people he was very fond of, his Greek friends. And it was the, the, the whole thing was so bad that he um, he felt obliged to leave Greece for a bit, um, uh, and uh, only came back when the emergency was over. There is an unbelievable letter, um, you know, when he'd first travelled into India, and he presents such a vibrant and colourful and pacey picture to the reader. And I've been to India twice, and when I read this, he really captured the essence of um, the kind of the state of being when you're in India. But I was just wondering then, as I was reading it, going. Did he actually know that these letters would finally be published somewhere? Because that, they must have took so much time and so much thought, you that's know. That's a, a very interesting question. Um, I, and, and one I've often reflected on. I think he, he did know that the letters would be read at a later stage because there are various sort of hints in the letters um, ab, ab, uh, about this. And, and, and indeed, he worries uh, um, um, certain letters that come back to him, for example, um, the letters to Joan, um, he has uh, um, crossed things out, scrubbed things out that he thinks might give offence to people. Um, much to my frustration, I've held these letters up to the light and tried very hard to decipher what's been crossed out, but not, not usually been able to find out. Um, he does refer somewhere to, uh, he says, if my letters are ever published in a 100 years from now, he says, um, the title of the volume will have to be In Sackcloth and Ashes because he's always apologizing for being late with his letters. Uh, I, did, I did mention this to my publishers and they said they thought that was too depressing a title. So uh, um, they preferred Dashing for the Post, um, which is also, uh, he always seems to be writing in a rush. That's another thing. And even though some of these letters took several days to write, um, but um, he, he often refers to the need to go off and post the letter or on one occasion even to the postman waiting and rolling his eyes and drumming his fingers in, in impatience. Um, so uh, <laughs> um, that, all that's in the letter. The circumstances of writing the letters is, is there uh, with the main content. What is a time to keep silence like? Is it in terms of where would you rate it in terms of his books? Um, well, where do you position it? It's, it's, a, it's a slight book. It, it's based on letters he wrote from these uh, monasteries. And um, for those who are interested in this sort of thing, which I am to a certain extent, but it seems to me that some people are very interested, um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's rather beautiful um, series of vignettes. Um, uh, it, um, as I say, some people love it. I think it's interesting, but I don't think it uh, compares with the, the, the best of his work. Um, uh, he, um, he went to these monasteries basically just to find time to write. But he... Being the kind of person he was, he uh, talked to uh, to the abbots and the pair hoteliers and all the other um, people, the monks, um, um, became interested in their lives and uh, and and uh, um, and the way, uh, the way that they had chosen to live. Um, and uh, he found it in some ways very attractive. Although, <laughs> I mean, the thought of Paddy in a Trappist monastery is is uh, sort of like an oxymoron, really. One of the most talkative people you can possibly imagine. Um, Do you think he learned from that experience? So, like, you've um, written a range of uh, biographies of very fascinating and complex characters. So you're you're presented with this information that you know A travels to B, this location, which potentially could do one or two different things to them: either turn them over the edge, or they become in somewhat more in 
enlightened in some way. So I'm just wondering, here he goes, he's li- living a rather extraordinary life. He lands in this monastery with the monks. He's praying with them, meditating with them, eating with them and all the rest. Um, do you think it did something to him? Did it challenge him? Did it develop him either morally, creatively? Like, can you see, like, as a biographer, can you see through the letters a kind of a change in him in some way? I think not a profound change, but I think everything that he does leaves its mark on him. I mean, I think that's the kind of person he is. And I think that's, you know, earlier on we were talking about different kinds of travel writers. I think the literary travel writers are, you know, they they observe the, the, the people that they're... Um, uh, uh, in the places that they're going to, and they 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 are influenced by them. They 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 understand their culture. I mean, one of the things about Paddy was that he um, he spoke um, many languages fluently, and and he, but that enabled him to go deep into a culture in a way that most travellers don't. Uh, so he could have real conversations, deep conversations about um, things that mattered, you know, like spiritual matters, for example. With um, uh, with the monks, but it has to. Having said all of that, I mean, it has to be said he's not a, really a religious person at, at root. Um, uh, there's no real strong feeling of religion in his letters, um, and although he would have called himself a Christian, um, I, he he didn't spend much time in, in churches as a as a, uh, a um, as, as a devotee. He, he spent plenty of time in churches. Admiring the architecture and the frescoes and so on, but but uh, it was rather similar with his politics. You know, his politics. He was uh, um, uh, he was a sort of old-fashioned conservative in, in 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 by instinct, but he wasn't really interested in politics. That wasn't what motivated him, and he could understand the point of view of um, of, of people who thought very differently. But he, you know, it wasn't for him um, the thing that um, um, made him tick. But presumably as a biographer and you're creating these wonderful uh, collections of letters, you know, you can maybe trace potential in a person and they, they develop in one direction and they move through different um, experiences in another direction. And sometimes maybe you can see they kind of blew something a bit <laughs> or they just kind of cock things up. Do you ever get kind of frustrated within that when you're dealing with such large personality types and you can see, oh, if they only had bloody, if they did this or... Or does that, or does that bother you? Um, it doesn't really bother me. No, I think it's just endlessly fascinating. Uh, I think that um, studying other people's lives is enriching. Um, perhaps it helps you to lead a slightly better life yourself because you, you know, the experience of um, entering to somebody else's um, personality and world. Um, I don't know, widens your horizons. You know, it's a bit of a cliche, I know, but but gives you a sense of what it's like to be somebody else. And that must be an enriching thing, I think. So, um, uh, no, I mean, you know, Paddy's a very different person from me in all sorts of ways. Um, I don't share his, for example, interest, um, which I think is slightly ridiculous in aristocracy or hierarchy. Um, you know, one of the very valid questions about Paddy is whether he was a snob because he certainly enjoyed the company of, 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 of titled people. But um, having said that, he also enjoyed the company of very ordinary people. Um, he was the kind of person who could go into a, um, a local taverna in a Greek village, and within perhaps 10 or 15 minutes, he'd have everybody singing and dancing, um, he, you know, because he, he'd be the, the center of everything, um, uh, and because he'd enjoy the company of everybody. Um, whether they were, uh, you know, a duchess or a um, an old peasant lady in a in a Greek village, uh, he may have been a snob in the sense of um, being a bit too interested in titles, but he wasn't a snob in the sense of looking down on people. That's that's that, that's the distinction I make. So basically, he liked the fringe benefits or liked the social politics. Is that it? Yes, maybe that's it. Yes, I mean, well, you know, who doesn't? You know, who wouldn't <laughs> like to go and sleep at Chatsworth and you know, kind of uh, or Lismore and go and. Uh, um, fish for salmon in the river below, or whatever it is, and you know he met lots of very interesting people. And one of the things about this, the world that he inhabited, which is a world I think that is now perhaps no more, but um, of of the 1950s and 1960s, is there was a a sort of um, uh, crossing point between high society or some elements of high society and Bohemia and the arts. So, you know, you might get a house party where you might have, for example, 
Margot Fontaine or um, um, you might have um, Francis Bacon um, or um, Cyril Connolly or or, um, um, there'd be writers, intellectuals, painters, um, actors, dancers, choreographers, um, all these people, um, you know, might be there at a house party at, uh, at Chatsworth. Um, I hadn't realised he um, wrote some anthropological studies as well. Like he did quite serious, some very serious type of research as well. Yes, especially in sort of peasant communities in remote parts of Greece, um, but also in Romania and Hungary and so on. He was very, very interested in folk culture. Um, I mean, for example, one that just comes to my mind in um, is a very strange group of people in um, northern Greece towards um um, uh, Thessaloniki, but up in the mountains above, who basically were all beggars. I mean, they 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 were a, 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 a tribe of people who, for centuries, had made their life from begging, and they they faked or even deliberately mutilated themselves um, in order to uh, to be to enhance their begging. Um, and and there's a sort of whole kind of tribal culture based on that. Um, it may be rather extraordinary and possibly repulsive, but, you know, it was fascinating. And uh, there are many, many, um, I mean, that's just one tiny example from, from hundreds of, uh, of, of, of such um, uh, discoveries that Paddy made in, his, uh, in, in, in just talking to people and listening to people. Paddy travelled to Tibet and Syria, as well as, you know, as you mentioned, Hungary, Romania, and um, obviously all across Greece. He was in Central and South America. Um, he was obviously in the States. It is amazing that he did all of this, you know, pre-Wi-Fi for pretty much um, without mobile phones. You know, mm. like, you know, the way you go on Google Maps, you kind of trace through different things and you, you know, booking tickets and everything. He seemed to have in a lot of his, uh, by coming through in the letters, certainly, that, you know, he kind of jumped buses to a degree like he was kind of you know all emotionally did a plan but it wasn't like all completely fixed down do you know what oh, I mean there was a huge not, spontaneity no, to it he would just uh, you know he'd find out by asking in the taverna or the cafe or the, the trattoria or wherever it happened to be you know and there'd, there'd be a bus at six in the morning that will take you to you know the next town and so you get on that bus and be talking to people and um, he, he walked a lot as well he walked uh, all over Greece a lot in Italy, um, uh, um, to some extent in France too. So, um, uh, uh, and on foot, you meet, you tend to meet people and uh, and experience life um, much more than if you're racing past in a in a in a car in an air conditioned car along a motorway. Um, it's a different kind of idea of travel altogether. It's a travel much a much deeper immersion, you might say, in the in the the culture of the country that you're visiting. Tell me, um, Adam, you dedicate more dashing to the late John Julius uh, Norwich. He was the um, son of um, uh, Paddy Fremore's close friend, Lady Diane Cooper, wasn't that it? Yes. I mean, rather um, interestingly, Paddy was friendly with three generations of that family. He was friendly with Diana Cooper um, and indeed briefly with her husband, Duff Cooper. But um, uh, Duff died only a couple of years after... Um, he, he had met them, um, um, but uh, so she was a widow for a long time, and he he spent a lot of time with her and travelled with her, and uh, and and um, liked her a good deal. She also wrote him good letters, um, so he knew her pretty well. Um, he knew John Julius, who was her son and who inherited the title from his father, and therefore became Viscount Norwich. And 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 uh, but but John Julius, as I'm sure you know, was really much better known as a television personality and a writer. Uh, um, and then he um, w- um, eventually became friendly with John Julius's daughter Artemis, who who wrote his biography. So there are three generations of this this uh, this aristocratic family that he 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 knows. He knows them all equally well. John Julius was very helpful to me in the early stages, um, particularly when there, there are all sorts of um, uh, allusions and references in Paddy's letters that are quite hard to tease out. And John Julius helped me solve a lot of problems. And it, it so happened that um, I'd not known John Julius before. I just got to know him but through through working on Paddy. Um, uh, John Julius died just as the, the second book, More Dashing, the, the, uh, went to press. And I thought it would be a, a, a nice gesture because I owed him a lot to, to dedicate it to him. So that that's the reason.
John Judith uh, likened um, Paddy to some of the greatest travel writers and I know he mentioned their, uh, you mentioned their um, Baron, but he also compared him to Henry James. Do you agree with that point? Well, I'm not sure that I am the best person to, to give a verdict on this, but I think Paddy's letters are terrific letters and he is certainly one of the, the great letter writers of the 20th century. Um, whether time, you know, whether he will be two or three hundred years from now, can stand up alongside Barron or Horace Walpole or Henry James, these, these, these great letter writers of the past, is, is a bit difficult to tell. Um, but I think his best letters are absolutely... I, I say in my introduction, I use an expression that Paddy himself used. Um, his best letters are absolutely tip-top. And that was British writer, biographer and cultural critic Adam Sisman. More dashing, further letters of Patrick Lee Firmer is published by Bloomsbury and retails for just under €33 Euros in hardback or €28 Euros on an e-book. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. OK, all that's left for me to do now is to say thank you for listening and a big shout out to the lovely Jojo on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to close tonight's broadcast with a reading from Adam Sisman from his terrific collection of letters. More dashing, further letters of Patrick Lee Firmer. This letter um, um, I'm about to read is a letter written to Joan, his partner, um, uh, in the early 1960s, in 1962. Um, Joan has come in some money when her mother died and that's enabled them to... um, contemplate buying a house in Greece or, or finding a house um, and uh, Paddy sets off to search for one and, um, uh, in the Mani in the Peloponnese um, and initially they're thinking of converting one of the towers that uh, dot the western coastline of the Peloponnese um, so he, he uh, in this letter he sets off um, uh, with a friend of his called Ian Wiggum this is to Joan Rayner. Um, she wasn't his wife then. She, she later became Joan E. Firmer, and the date is 26th of June, 1962. Darling Joan, I'm so dreadfully sorry about the lateness of this. I was in the middle of a long letter begun in multiple charno and continued in Rome, pages and pages, and it was idiotically still unfinished when I came here. That's to Athens. And now in my multiple changes of address here, it seems to have evaporated, which is absolutely maddening and frustrating. But in a way, perhaps it's all to the good, as I got fearfully gloomy and depressed in Montepulciano and simply loathed Rome, and the letter was really a long jeremiah about the awfulness of Italy and me and pretty melancholy reading. Anyway, darling, to hell with all that. I rented a Fiat 1100 for £30, and off we set. Lunch at Aya Theodori, bathed, night in Calamata, to Cardamini next day, Shea Socrates Valiares, who sends love and was a great ally throughout. It turned out that the tower belongs to the state, the adjoining ruined house to a gymnasiac in Kalamata, and the pretty house across the square beside the church to two half-mad megalomaniac spinster hags, both of whom by rights ought to be in an asylum. They have a frantic devotion to their ancestral acres and burst into screams at the idea of selling. Socrates reasoned with them. They wavered, changing their minds every five minutes, and then embracing us, then hurling curses and prophecies out of the apocalypse, finally stickling about a field which we would have had to have had for the bare minimum of privacy. Finally, thank God, turning into immovable mules. I say thank God because even if we had been able to buy it, they would have made the neighborhood intolerable to us as they insisted on an open right-of-way clean through the middle for them and their all-devouring goats and would have been on top of us screaming all day long. They have voices that carry five miles and verbal diarrhea. One of them spoke without a single comma for an hour and 20 minutes 
with shrill, maddening, terrifying scream, embracing in her discourse the atom bomb, the wickedness of the Turks, the end of the world, the vice of foreigners, the beast of Babylon with the harlot on its back, with a cupful of abominations, fire, swords, and brimstones. I would willingly have throttled her. Ian listened with considerable astonishment. I must say, the place looked marvellous, but we're well out of it. Also, it's far too much in the village, and as Ian pointed out, would have cost thousands to render habitable. We looked at several other sites, but all were no good for one reason or another. In despair, we drove down the coast to the village of Stupa for a bathe and a quick look at a rather jolly Panagri. On the way there, about two miles south of Cardamili, we saw a peninsula jutting between two valleys, ending in a crescent-shaped beaches covered with olives and cypresses, and determined to bathe there on the way back, dazzled by the beauty of the place. This we accordingly did, walking down into a gently sloping world of the utmost magical beauty, descending shells of grass going gently down to the sea, thick with magnificent olive trees and cypresses and lots of other trees, one or two stone pines, a hackleberry, almonds, oranges, lemons, pomegranates, pistachio, carobs, and ibex, Lentisk, mulberry, sisters, capers, every kind of plant and shrub. The view is an enormous expanse of sea, bounded by the headlands, off the right hand one of which, due west, is the island with a castle on it, about half a mile away, and beautifully and dramatically placed. The sun is visible until its last gasp. Behind, the peninsula mounts forested and melts into a great conch of grey and orange rock, ribbed and cliffed like the mountains near Leonidon and like them, flaring crimson at sunset. Through pie clefts of these are glimmering grey glimpses of the highest agatus. But nothing overpowers or impedes. There is not a house in sight. Nothing but rocks, trees, mountains and sea. It's called Kalamitsi. <laughs> 